Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 7, Numbers, chapter 5, the conclusion. We're going to continue in one of these lessons that's just plain scary. I can tell you it's scary for me to give. And uh, it's one of those that makes me want to lock the door so you don't leave too early. But just hang in there with me and we'll see if we can't get through this. Um, You're probably going to hear some things that you haven't heard before about this. And we'll just see what you think about it. Now we've been studying the fifth chapter of Numbers. And I promise you we'll finally finish it tonight. And it's the uh, story of a woman suspected of adultery who does not confess it. And this is an entirely different situation, you see, than the woman who has been caught in the act by her husband. There are witnesses. They will testify. And the woman does not proclaim her innocence. Okay. In the second case, the procedure is brutally simple. She's hauled outside the camp and stoned to death. Okay. But in the first case, a trial must be held to determine guilt or innocence since the facts are in doubt. But in the first case, since there's only suspicion and no witnesses, or at least none that will testify, how does one go about determining if that woman is telling the truth and if she has remained faithful to her husband? Well, the answer to that is the law that is contained in Numbers chapter 5 as prescribed by the Lord, and I call it trial by God. Okay? The elements of the trial are these. The woman's suspicious husband brings her to the tabernacle, And a Levite priest will then conduct a special ritual as part of the procedure. And the ritual consists of a priest writing an oath on a scroll and then washing it off into a cup of water. The water is called holy water in many translations, but in fact, holy water is the same thing as living water. That is, living water is but water from a moving source like a river or a stream or an artesian fountain. Living water is required for all holy priestly ritual, and thus it's called holy water. So next, after he's washed off the oath, the letters of the oath into this cup of, of holy water, living water, some dust is gathered from the tabernacle floor. It's put into the cup of, lo- put into the cup of water. Now, understand that the key to this whole thing is the letters that are contained in that oath that's washed off into the cup. Because the key letters in there are God's name. That is washed into the cup. You see, an oath is not an oath if God's name's not invoked. The woman then drinks the water. And then only the passing of time gives the results. Okay? If the woman is never able from this point forward to bear children, she was guilty. And that's her punishment. 
If she's able to have children, then she was innocent, and the children are her reward. Now, last week we read a well-known New Testament story about a group of men who brought to Jesus a woman who they said had been caught in the act of adultery, and they wanted to know what Jesus was, would do about this. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Maybe this was the first instance of it. Now, let's review that story. Because I think it has an, ex- well, it has an absolutely firm connection in my mind to Numbers 5 as its underlying meaning. In fact, we're going to spend considerable time tonight on this New Testament passage as a means of demonstrating the necessity of knowing Torah before we do serious study of the New Testament. Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, if you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1340. We're just going to read the first 11 verses. But when but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives, and then at daybreak he appeared again in the temple court where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now the Torah teachers and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery and made her stand in the center of the group. Then they said to him, Rabbi, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in our Torah, Moses commanded that such a woman be stoned to death. What do you say about it? They said this to trap him so that they might have grounds for bringing charges against him. But Yeshua bent down he began writing in the dust with his finger. And when they keep questioning him, he straightened up. And he said to them, For one of you who is without sin, let him be the first to throw the stone at her. Then he bent down and he wrote in the dust again. And on hearing this, they began to leave one by one, the older ones first, until he was left alone with the woman still there. And standing up, Yeshua said to her, Where are they? Are Has has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, sir. And Yeshua said, neither do I condemn you then. Now go and don't sin anymore. This story in the New Testament um, book of John must be taken in the context of Torah. Frankly, as should all stories and observations and commentaries that formed the New Testament. If we try to separate this event from our understanding that Yeshua was a Torah-observant Jew and is himself the author of the Torah, then we're going to miss the point on many of the things written about him and in many of his recorded sayings. Now, the dragging of this woman accused of adultery before Jesus, as it says, was simply a test. It was a trap by these rabbis and scribes who brought her to see if they could get him to say something against the law of Moses, and thus he would automatically be discredited. It was a political ploy at a time of great political upheaval, of great temple corruption, and of intrigue in Judea. 
Now, there's some things that, that need to be carefully explored about this story if we're going to grasp its meaning. Now, first, <clears throat> I well understand that this is one of the most beloved stories in the New Testament, and so I'm likely to tread on some folks' feelings about it, and I apologize in advance for challenging the conventional wisdom on this matter. Now, this passage is most typically used to demonstrate a couple of things. First, that Jesus is all-merciful. And second, that sinners have no right to judge anybody else. Okay. Now, those conclusions have become doctrines and mainstays of Christian institutions. Now, we can debate on another occasion as to whether one or both or neither of those conclusions ought to be a proper Christian doctrine. That's not for tonight. But tonight I am going to suggest to you that the point of this particular story in John 8 probably has little, if anything, to do with Yeshua's mercy or of his requirement that only sinless people ought to witness against another person or who could rightfully carry out judicial punishments on somebody else. Now let's look at what happened here. Because there are some oddities about this story that have perplexed and upset many scholars and Bible translators over the centuries. This unnamed woman is brought before Yeshua and he is told that she has committed adultery. Now since her guilt is apparently not the issue, the only question these men have for Yeshua is what he thinks her punishment ought to be. And in the most accepted Christian interpretations of this passage, the outcome, essentially, has Yeshua telling the men that unless they've lived a sin-free life, they have no right to accuse her or to carry out any kind of judicial punishment on this woman. In this case, that would be stoning. Further, after these men have skulked away from the area in shame, Jesus determines in his mercy to more or less ignore the crime that the woman has committed, while according to the law, this is among the worst of sins that can possibly be committed. He lets her off the hook, so to speak, and says, be on your way, don't sin anymore. Now, there's to be no repercussions, because, well, because Jesus has determined there shouldn't be. And this story is explained typically, is a very great demonstration of his limitless mercy. Now, while I believe, thank you, Lord, in a merciful Savior, and am deeply grateful for that indispensable attribute of his, I see the application of mercy as the least probable interpretation of this rather problematic story. Now, let me tell you something about this story that most folks don't realize. It's that this particular story about Yeshua has so troubled Bible Bible councils and Bible interpreters that to this day you will find it in some Bible translations and you won't find it in others. This controversial narrative has been removed and added back into the New Testament many times over the centuries. Why? Because what is stated simply doesn't add up. It doesn't seem to follow the pattern of Jesus' life. 
He doesn't seem to follow his pronouncements, his other actions. It even calls into question his very compliance to the Torah that he and all the apostles claim he followed perfectly. Now here's the basic problem with it. Scholars will say to us, and I go along with this, there's absolutely no element of trust or faith in Yeshua involved in this narrative. You won't find it. Belief was never asked of this woman. It's not even implied that this woman had any idea who Jesus was. There was no acknowledgement of his status as the Messiah, of his being a divine being. She didn't ask for forgiveness, nor was it offered per se. The second problem with this is that adultery was indeed a God-ordained capital offense as found in the Torah. It is so serious that it is part of the foundational principles for the entire Bible. It's included in them, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20.30, do not murder, do not commit adultery. Adultery was so heinous in God's eyes that it was put on the same level as murder. Leviticus 20.10 If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, that is, with the wife of a fellow countryman, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. No ifs, no ands, no buts. A woman who commits adultery must be executed. Now, was Yeshua familiar with this law? Did he agree with it? John 1.1 In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came to be through Him, and without Him nothing was made. Jesus is the Word of God. He wrote the Torah. He is the Torah. So it's pretty hard to imagine that He was now disavowing its contents. Here's the thing. We will find no other story about Jesus that even remotely implies that He simply dismisses civil and criminal lawbreakers from their responsibility to their crimes. Rather, he rescued folks from the spiritual consequences of their trespasses. But there was always a caveat to that. Faith in him as God's Messiah. No trust in him, no forgiveness, no redemption. Yet by most interpretations, that's what happened here. For some reason, Jesus waved his hand, dismissed the crime, and said, just don't do it again. I find that unlikely. So, now there is a second aspect to consider. And it involves the statement, let he who is without sin cast the first stone And the standard interpretation would have it that as sinners, we have no business pointing out the sin in someone else. Some have gone so far as to say that in its strictest sense, Jesus is teaching that only a completely sinless person can even be a reliable witness to a crime. Or that only a completely sinless person 
can be a person who orders judicial punishment, or that a completely sinless person can even execute capital punishment. Now, such an idea, of course, is simply unworkable. It would bring any kind of justice system to a, to a standstill. By that standard, nobody can be accused, tried, convicted, punished, because there's no such thing as a sinless person to prosecute them. Therefore, this common interpretation cannot be correct, as many scholars have complained against it for literally hundreds of years. You know, I, I do think that the story should not be removed. I think it belongs here. Because I think it happened. And I think it was recorded correctly. I believe the problem lies in trying to make it fit predisposed agendas rather than interpreting it in its Jewish cultural context. Notice the circumstances. It is said by the accusers that she was caught in the act of adultery. But was she? Were these upright and honorable men who were bringing this woman to Yeshua? No. These were representatives of a notorious and corrupt temple system that sought to rid itself of this upstart young rabbi named Yeshua who was making their lives a whole lot harder. There's no way to know for sure whether the accusation of this group was true. have no idea. I suspect that these men likely did not make a truthful statement. Or certainly that woman's husband would have been there to make the accusation because in fact by the law that was required. Okay. Add to that there's no admission of guilt of the woman recorded here. She was simply silent. Further Christ told her to go and sin no more. He didn't say don't go and commit adultery anymore. But assuming the unlikely that it was a truthful statement that she'd actually been caught in the act, Torah requires that there be at least two witnesses, at least two, including her husband in the case, who has to testify against her because this is a capital crime. Adultery is a capital crime. Now, even more, this is where it really gets interesting. It was required that the witnesses in a capital case begin the execution process. If this were applied to modern times, it would be the equivalent of the witnesses in a case were required to pull the lever for the gas chamber. Okay. The standard Jewish method of execution, of course, was stoning. It was a requirement of Torah that the witnesses were not just to be present at the execution, they had to be the first to throw the stones at the condemned person. There was a reason for that. It was a deterrent to false testimony. If a witness lied and it led to the death of an innocent person and then by their being part of the execution process, they now have blood on their hands. They become murderers they themselves now are subject to execution. 
that's a pretty big incentive not to give false or frivolous testimony in a capital case, isn't it? Thus we have Jesus saying, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. Who throws the first stone in a Jewish execution? Who throws it? The witnesses. It's my opinion that when Jesus said, he without sin, it was likely that he wasn't referring to sin in general. He's referring to the sin of bearing false witness. And maybe to some degree these men's impure motives for bringing this accusation in the first place. In this instance, the whole purpose of this witness against this woman was what? To entrap Jesus. The story itself tells us that. Yeshua called their bluff in a maneuver to make Perry Mason proud. He told them, did he not? Okay, witnesses, just go ahead and pick up your execution stone and throw it at her. Unless you were participating in a sin. Like maybe you're not telling the truth. Because if they were lying or just going along with the assumption of this woman's guilt without actually knowing it and got caught, they themselves would all be open to capital punishment. Now, I think there is nothing here but a false accusation using a helpless woman in order to try to discredit a rival. Jesus of Nazareth. Justice was never the issue in this. Getting rid of Yeshua was the issue. Now, we need to understand just how rampant adultery was in Jesus' day and that only women even needed to fear the accusation. The charge of adultery had become a joke. Everybody was doing it. The usual consequence for a woman accused of adultery was divorce now, not necessarily her death. No proof of adultery was even necessary for a man to divorce his wife, just the suspicion. But by Yeshua's day, only a husband could be an aggrieved person. That was the law of tradition. Men were simply no longer brought up on charges of adultery, even though Leviticus clearly stated that both men and women caught in adultery were to be executed. The concept of a woman being accused of adultery and being divorced instead of being executed for this adultery was tradition. It was not Torah. Okay. Men had decided that execution was just too harsh. Just, just too harsh. Why? Because this crime was so common now. Okay. This is but one small example of what Judaism had become in Jesus' day. Now, so since there is no hint that this woman had confessed to her supposed crime, the law says she should have been taken to the priests who would have performed the Numbers 5 water ordeal upon her. That's the law. Now, if I'm correct that the story of John 8 is more about the law of Numbers chapter 5 than anything else, a good question surrounding the story of Jesus and this woman accused of adultery would be, was the water ordeal 
still being practiced in this New Testament era, 1,300 years after it was first enacted, because believe me, a lot of laws, most of them still weren't. That was, they were gone. They weren't even doing it. Well, as a matter of fact, yes, it was. All right? And we find proof of it in the Mishnah, uh, Sota 9, where we find that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zachai eventually outlawed the water ordeal sometime just before the Romans destroyed the temple in 70 AD. Since Jesus died about 40 years earlier, we know that the water ordeal was still in use in his day. And Rabbi ben Zachai outlawed it, he said, because it had become misused and abused by husbands who just wanted to get rid of their wives. So they would accuse the wives of adultery, the wives would go through the water ordeal, and no matter what the outcome, they'd still divorce them. Because it was going to be years before it was known if a woman might become barren, which of course was the supernatural indication of her guilt. And the husband didn't want to wait. Now another interesting little thing. I've heard the most, some of the most amazing, and I might add inventive, suggestions on just what it was that Jesus was writing in the dust with his finger. As it says in verse 6 of John 8. Now even though nothing more is ever said about Jesus writing in the dust in the New Testament, it has for some reason captured the imaginations of Christian teachers and, and pastors. So let's address that a little bit. In Numbers 5 we find that the focal point of the water ordeal ritual is a special drink concoction. Okay, And we find that there are three ingredients to that water concoction the woman's supposed to swallow. We went through it earlier. Holy water, living water, same thing, dust, and ink from the letters of the vow the priest has written down on, on a scroll as to her punishment. Now, We've been through this again about holy water, but I, I want to make it very clear. because it's complex, so I'm going to repeat myself a couple times. Holy water is just another word for living water. Holy water only indicates that it's water that's been drawn from a running spring or river designated for use at the temple. And from a practical standpoint, holy water was but the water that filled the copper labor at the temple. The same water the priests used to dip from to wash their hands and their feet during temple rituals. Okay. Holy water, living water, two terms for the same thing. So added to this flask of living water, then was dust gathered from the temple floor. Why did it have to be dust from the temple floor? Because the dust had to be holy. The temple was God's dwelling place. Anywhere God dwells, contracts his holiness, like in you. Remember in Exodus, as Moses approached the burning bush, what was it that Moses was instructed to do, and why? That's right. He was ordered to remove his sandals from his feet. Why? He was about to stand on holy dust. Okay, why was that dust holy? And the dust just a little further away wasn't. Because God was present at the bush. So the dirt beneath God's 
feet, so to speak, the dirt that formed the floor of his dwelling place, the tabernacle, and of course later the temple, Jesus' era of the temple, was automatically made holy, and therefore it was that holy dust which was required to be put into the drink. Now as for the ink of the letters that was the last part to go into this concoction, it was required that God's name, yud vav be written along with an oath on a sheepskin scroll as part of that oath that the woman swore to. Now, we don't read what I just said to you directly in the Torah that the letters of God's name was written, but it doesn't matter because it's a given. Right? A, a, a biblical oath, by definition, must include God's name. Otherwise, it's not an oath. It's not a vow. Okay? Just as when we write a letter to someone today, we write our name at the end of that letter. When we say to someone, I wrote so-and-so a letter, we don't have to say, oh, yeah, and I signed my name. That's just part of the deal. Okay. Same thing with an oath. You see, a biblical oath is the invoking of God's name as a validation and a witness of that statement. It's calling upon God to be the guarantor of that promise. Therefore, when the ink of that written oath was immediately washed off into the holy water, God's name flowed into it as an ingredient. Now, please hear me. This is not an allegory I'm giving you. This is accurate historical fact, well attested to in many ancient Jewish writings. Certainly this Ritual water mix is symbolic, as there is no magical quality about the water, ink, and dust. Okay. But what I'm telling you is not conjecture. It is what was recorded in those times about these proceedings and the meaning of each step. So, the drink that a woman accused of adultery swallowed consisted of living water, kind of water required for all holy rituals, dust made holy by God's presence, dust from the temple floor, and the letters of God's holy name. That was the ingredients. Now here's the thing. What in the world does dust, and Yeshua writing in the dust with his finger, have to do with this story of he and this accused woman? Everything. If we know the Torah... Because in Numbers 5, when a woman was brought before the priest and God to be judged as to whether she actually committed adultery or not, dust and writing were the central parts of that ritual. We see every element of the law of Numbers 5 in the John 8 story of Jesus and the woman accused of adultery. We have living water, Yeshua. A priest and God present, Yeshua. Holy dust. Jesus was currently at the temple when this happened, wasn't he? So we just read. And writing. Jesus inexplicably, mysteriously writing in the dust with his finger. I say it's driven people crazy for centuries. Why? Why? What's going on here? The woman was indeed brought before God. The requirement of Numbers 5 when she was brought before Yeshua, but those bringing her sure didn't know that. Jesus was writing in holy dust. 
because he was God. Right? He made the very ground he sat upon holy. What was he writing? You know, I can't be sure. But I suspect that it may have been yud Hey vav Hey, the letters that form God's name. That would have been the most consistent with the pattern set down in Numbers 5. Yeshua was simply displaying the real and original Torah. The Torah as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Torah we're studying together. And so Jesus was, was, as he eloquently stated in the Sermon on the Mount, he was on earth but to act out the meaning of Torah. That's what he's here for. Yeshua, who is living water, who is priest, who is God, writing on holy dust, with a woman accused of adultery standing before him. Hmm. See, this story is in many ways an irony. In John 8, these corrupt men had brought these women before God for judgment, and they didn't even know it. Before them was every ingredient of what they should have done, but they had no intention of doing. Right? Bringing the woman up for the water ordeal. Priest, God, holy water, holy dust, holy writings, all performed at the required location, the temple. See, do you see this? See, the Pharisees and rabbis who dragged that poor woman before Yeshua couldn't see it. They couldn't see what was actually occurring here because they were blind to their own Messiah and equally blind to the laws and commands of the Torah that they had largely replaced by now with their traditions. Listen to the last three verses of Numbers 5. But as you listen to this, picture, if you can, this woman standing there before Jesus is told in the story of John 8. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, being under the authority of her husband, goes astray and defiles herself, or when a spirit of jealousy comes over a man and he's jealous of his wife, he shall then make the woman stand before the Lord. And the priest shall apply all this law to her. Moreover, the man shall be free from guilt, but the woman shall bear hers. Indeed, the Torah was followed. Jesus followed the Torah better than those men who brought her before him. She stood before the Lord. She stood before the priest. All the law was properly applied to that woman. But they didn't know it. Jesus, of course, seeing no witnesses against her, no one to condemn her, no one would step forward, which is the requirement of the law of proven adultery in Leviticus, then move to the law of suspected adultery of Numbers 5, the test of the water ordeal and each and every element of it. Of course, as he was God on earth, there was less need that she drink a holy water mixture and wait for the results as a sign of God's judgment in the matter. Now, when Jesus tells the men who had brought the woman to him, he is he who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Remember, it was the witnesses who threw the first stone of execution. Understand, while they were going largely by tradition, that was not tradition, this was law. 
Listen to Deuteronomy 17.5. Then you shall bring out that man or woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterward, then all the hand of the people. So you shall purge evil from your midst. That's how it was required. Witnesses first. My dear friends, almost everything that happened with Jesus in the New Testament is completely explainable by means of the Torah. We don't need to resort to allegory and fanciful stories with dubious conclusions to defend the Bible. We just need to study the Word, the whole Word, and make the connections. They're there for us. Now, since Numbers chapter 5 and John chapter 8 is largely about the subject of adultery, there is one final aspect to this I'd like to bring out before we close tonight. And it is that the law of adultery assumes that one partner in the relationship is faithful while the other one is not. Let me quote Joseph Milgram, who says that the rabbis read the laws concerning adultery in precisely this way. If the man is clear of sin, then the woman, the one convicted of adultery, suffers in her guilt. See, that view is based largely on Hosea 4. The idea being that if a man was being unfaithful to his wife, then the wife's unfaithfulness merited no punishment. Listen to Hosea 4.14. Therefore your daughters behave like whores. Your daughters-in-law commit adultery. But I won't punish your daughters when they act like whores or your daughters-in-laws when they commit adultery because the men are themselves going off with whores, sacrificing with prostitutes. Yes, the people without understanding will come to ruin. See, marriage is the institution that God designed as a way to explain and demonstrate the relationship between himself and mankind. The definition of what adultery amounts to and what the effects and consequences are for adultery are placed in the Torah to protect that God-ordained institution of marriage. But these same effects and consequences caused by adultery upon a human marriage between a man and a woman also paint a picture of what happens when we commit adultery against God. The biblical term we see used in Numbers 5 and elsewhere in the Bible is when we do that, we are breaking faith. Adultery in a human marriage is the breaking of faith between the husband and the wife. Over and over again, we are told in the Bible that we break faith with God when we worship other gods, when we choose the way of the world over the way of the Lord, when we decide to dedicate ourselves to religious doctrines made by men and nice-sounding traditions instead of to the actual word of God as laid down in the scriptures, and when we violate his laws and commands. Over and over we're told in the word that God is always faithful. He never breaks faith with us. 
He never changes. He's always just and loving. If God were to ever be unfaithful towards us, it would basically invalidate the entire biblical concept of adultery and of breaking faith. Without the faithfulness of one of the partners, adultery has no meaning. If God is unfaithful to us, then it's not possible for us to be unfaithful to him. Let me repeat that. If God ever becomes unfaithful to us, then the entire premise of our relationship with him goes right down the drain. Fortunately, we never have to worry about that. Because God is not a man that he might change or be tempted Therefore, from the rabbi's point of view, and I think they're dead on in their thinking, adultery in a marriage only has meaning if one party remains faithful and the other becomes unfaithful. If both are unfaithful, then adultery becomes an oxymoron. This is why, not long before the temple was destroyed, that Rabbi Yochanan ben Sakai abolished the water ordeal of the suspected adulteress of Numbers 5 because men had long ago excused themselves of having to be faithful to their wives. Therefore, adultery simply wasn't possible in that case. The Jewish men saw adultery as a one-way street. Only women could be unfaithful. Men had no obligations to remain pure in their marriage. In effect, there was no adultery because there was no real faithfulness anyway. Thus, this is reflected in the New Testament statement of Yeshua, who said in Matthew 5.31, And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone that divorces his wife except for the cause of a chastity, Unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, here Yeshua makes it clear, despite what you may think the remainder of the instruction concerning divorce is indicating, that unfaithfulness basically destroys the whole marriage dynamic. It's gone. When Christ was addressing the crowds and talking about adultery, it wasn't because it was a rarity in Jewish society. It had become the norm. Just it has, unfortunately, it's become so again in our time. We'll take up Numbers chapter 6 next week.